Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We are going to resume our sermon series today on Scripture, a series called Trembling Before the Word, What Scripture Says About Scripture. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in this series as Pastor Brian and Josh have been preaching in my absence. Uh, We're going to be reading this morning from Luke chapter 4, so if you want to get out your Bibles, Luke uh, Luke 4, verses 16 through 21. And um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there is a white paperback Bible in the chairs in front of you that you should be able to retrieve. And the passage is on page 501 of that uh, paperback Bible. Luke 4, 16 through 21. Just a quick review of this sermon series. You might remember that we began considering the question of whether the Bible was true, and we answered that in the affirmative. Uh, primarily because Jesus believes the Bible to be true, and we want to believe like Jesus believes. We looked at Scripture, and we saw that Jesus affirmed his belief in the truthfulness of the Word. Secondly, we talked about the question of whether the Bible is clear. Can we really understand it? Is it too difficult for us to grasp? And again, we answered the question in the affirmative. The Bible is clear. That is, it is clear enough for you to know how you should respond to Jesus, how to be saved, and how you should live in a way that can glorify Him. Not everything in the Bible is equally clear, but generally speaking, it is clear. And then thirdly, on Reformation Sunday, we looked at the doctrine of sola scriptura. Uh, That means Scripture alone. This idea that the Scriptures are our final authority in all matters of life, faith, and practice. And uh, after that, I uh, went out of the country, and so today we're resuming this series. And the question today before us is going to be this. Is your Bible reliable? That is, the Bible that you hold in your hands right now, or the Bible that's on your phone, or the Bible that's uh, at home on your shelf or on your night table, is that Bible, the English Bibles that we have, is it reliable? That is... Is it close enough to what the writers of the Bible intended that you can know what God intended to be in the Bible? Why is this a question? Well, there's a lot of people who poke at the Bible and undermine its authority by asking questions about this very thing. So let me give you an example of this. This was uh, 2014 in Newsweek magazine. A writer said this, no television preacher has ever read the Bible Neither has any evangelical politician, neither has the Pope, neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation or translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. Newsweek magazines, this is a very common accusation. We can't really know whether the Bibles we have today are reliable because of all the translations and all the copies that have been made over the years. Another example of this showed up a few years ago on the Larry King Show. Larry King was interviewing Shirley MacLaine, and uh, a Christian called in to talk to Shirley MacLaine, and Shirley dismissed the caller right away by saying, you believe 
in the Bible, and of course we know that because the Bible's been translated so many times, we can't know what it means. And Larry King added, everybody knows that. Like this is just common knowledge. We all know that the Bible is not reliable. Now, I'm guessing the majority of people here today probably don't agree with that, but when you live in a culture in which you're hearing those messages over and over again, it's very hard for those things not to just kind of seep into your conscience. It's very hard to hear those kinds of things and not have your confidence in the Bible at least a little bit undermined. It's very hard to hear those things, and particularly when you face something in the Bible that challenges you, something in the Bible that you don't really like, it's really easy to kind of dismiss it and put it aside with a question in the back of your mind as to whether that's really a reliable interpretation or not. Maybe this doesn't apply to me. After all, the Bible has been translated and copied so many times. So that's what we're talking about here this morning. We're going to kind of look behind the scenes to see how the Bible developed, how we got the Bible's that we have today. There's a cliche that says you wouldn't want to see how sausage is made. You know, the idea is that if you really knew all that went into the making of sausage, you would never want to eat sausage. You don't really want to know what goes on behind the scenes. Well, I think it's different with the Bible. If you know what has gone on behind the scenes in the development of our Bible, um, you should come away with more confidence in it, and you should come away finding it absolutely reliable. That's really my goal and my intention. This is my prayer for you as a congregation, and I pray it every time I prepare a sermon in this series. My prayer for you is that you would hear these sermons and you would develop a deeper appreciation, a deeper gratitude, a deeper passion, and a deeper confidence in the authority and reliability of the Bible. So that's what I want for you guys And we're going to look to Luke 4 here, verses 16 to 21, to help us with that. So a little context here, Luke 4, 16 to 21. This is the very beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus. Luke has already told us about the baptism of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness, the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 3. And as we get here to the middle of chapter 4, this is the first event of Jesus' public ministry. And um, we're going to read this now. So, why don't you stand up for the reading of God's Word, Luke 4, 16 through 21. You'll notice in the passage that um, people stood up for the reading of the Word here, too. Luke 4, starting with verse 16. And he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Lord in heaven, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, this quote from this writer of Newsweek is um, dealing with really two questions, and you'll notice the words that he uses here. At best, he says we've all read a bad translation, and then he goes on to talk about copies of copies of copies, and of course, again, the implication is that the Bible that we really all want to hear and read is hopelessly lost in obscurity. So, I'm just going to take these two issues to kind of unfold for you today, the issue of translations and the issues of copies. So I'm just going to form this in terms of two questions, and the first would be this. How can the Bible be reliable when it has been translated so many times? Again, maybe you've had this question yourself. Maybe you've known others who've had this question. Let's take a look at it. How can the Bible be reliable when it's been translated so many times? Well, here's what's happening in this passage. Jesus is entering this synagogue, and uh, you notice it says it was as his custom in verse 16, as was his custom. This was something Jesus did on a regular basis. This was his habit, that on the Sabbath, he was in church, basically is what that says. Every Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue to worship. Now, in the synagogue in this time, there wasn't any pastor or you know, priest or minister kind of figure. What would happen is authorities there in the synagogue would invite people to just stand up and preach, kind of invite guest preachers to talk about the Scriptures. And so it appears that Jesus was the guest speaker on this particular day. And so in verse 17, you see that a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So apparently this was an assigned reading. The scroll is given to Jesus, and he is charged with the task of giving a sermon here on the book of Isaiah. And so he stands up out of respect for the word, and he reads it. And then on verse 20, you see that he sat down. Now that's kind of surprising maybe, but Apparently, it was typical for preachers at this time to preach sitting down. Uh, that just would seem to be difficult for me. I don't know. You got to get into the message and you want to stand up. It would be difficult, but that's the custom of this day to preach sitting down. And then in verse 21, we see he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He began to say, so it seems like this was the beginning of the sermon that Jesus was about to preach. We don't get the entire sermon, just the kind of intro statement that Jesus made, but uh, that's kind of what's happening here. Jesus, the guest speaker, is called on to preach, and he preaches on this passage from Isaiah 61. And of course, the point that Jesus is making is that what Isaiah prophesied that this coming Messiah who will proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and sight to the blind, etc., has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're talking about here in this Advent season, looking forward to the coming of Jesus. Well, what Jesus says is the Messiah has come. I am here. Everything that the Old Testament has been prophesying about the coming Messiah is fulfilled in me. And that's how Jesus begins this sermon. So here are some things that I want to note about our topic here this morning, about the reliability 
of the Bible. Some things we kind of, again, have to get behind the scenes, kind of reading between the lines a little bit here to see what's going on. Well, the first one, first thing I want to consider is this. That is the language that Jesus spoke. Have you ever wondered that? What language did Jesus speak? I mean, he was a Jew, so pretty sure he spoke Hebrew. But the common language of the day, actually, among the Jews at this time was Aramaic. And so most people think that that was the primary language in which Jesus spoke. But the primary language of the Roman Empire was Greek. So Jesus probably knew a little Greek. There's a little bit of speculation here. Probably knew a little Greek, almost certainly preached, uh, spoke Hebrew, and certainly spoke in Aramaic. And what probably happened here in this scene, when the scripture from Isaiah was read, it was most likely, this being a synagogue, a Jewish temple, most likely it was read in Hebrew, and then somebody, maybe Jesus, interpreted it into Aramaic. So in terms of speaking languages, you see there's a number of different languages at work here in this time, in this context, in this culture. But here's something else to consider, and that is we have to wonder what the text was that Jesus was actually using. There was something called the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, The New Testament was written in Greek. Both those languages have been translated into English for us. But during this time, during the biblical times, Hebrew was not a very commonly spoken language. Again, it was Greek that was the primary language in the Roman Empire. So for people to understand the Old Testament, it had to be translated into Greek. So here you have Jesus speaking Aramaic, possibly looking at a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The reason I'm explaining all this to you is so that you can see that there were many languages at work in in biblical times, during the time of Jesus' ministry and the apostles' ministry. Many languages at work. Sometimes we look back at this and we think because we're Western people who live in the 21st century, that we've got this language barrier to deal with. But, of course, they, back in those times, didn't have that issue. Well, that's not true. They had the same issues. They had the same problems and the same challenges in understanding different languages. After all, the book of Isaiah would have been written centuries before this event that we're seeing in Luke chapter 4. So we have a large passing of time between the writing of Isaiah and the reading of it here in this synagogue. And we also have different cultural changes, different languages at work. When we look at the scriptures, we don't see any kind of objection, any kind of problem, any kind of assumption that somehow the Bible, the Old Testament, can't be understood because it's been translated into so many different languages. We don't see that problem. Jesus received all kinds of pushback. You know he was challenged all the time in his ministry. Almost anything that he said was challenged, particularly his claim to be the divine son of God his observance of the Sabbath, his interpretation of Old Testament texts, his treatment of various Pharisees, constantly was receiving pushback, challenge on those issues. One thing we never see in the Bible is a challenge to Jesus because of any kind of language barrier. We never see anybody say, oh, Jesus, 
how can we really know if you are the fulfillment of Isaiah when you're speaking Aramaic and referring to a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament? So many languages involved here. We certainly can't understand. I guess we can't know if you're Messiah or not. Nobody said that. You would expect Jesus' fiercest enemies to grab onto anything they could to confront his ministry. They could have said that if it were an issue. They didn't say it because it wasn't an issue. Here's how John Frame says it. Scripture never suggests that translation itself reduces the power of authority of the Word of God. Rather, insofar as a quotation reproduces the meaning of the original text, it reproduces the meaning and therefore the authority of the original. This shouldn't be a problem for us, friends. It's okay that the Bible was translated. It does not render the original text somehow lost. In fact, we ought to see the translation of the original writings of the Bible to be a tremendous blessing. This is an example of God's grace and kindness to the world. You know, if you think about the religion of Islam, their religious book, the Quran, can only be translated in one language, Arabic. When I was in East Asia last year, we went to a Muslim uh, a mosque and one of the imams came out and tried to convert us immediately to Islam. Now, of course, I didn't speak the language at the time, so he was having a conversation with somebody else. But this friend of mine said, here's what he said. He just said, you can become a Muslim by repeating after me in Arabic. Just say these things in Arabic and you can be saved. Implication being, even though you have no idea what it means because you don't speak Arabic, you have to say it in Arabic in order to be saved. Christianity's not like that. Christianity, the Bible, what God, God wants you to understand him. He wants you to know him. He doesn't want you lost in confusion and bewilderment. What does it say in Revelation chapter 5? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Language barriers are not a problem for God. Now, am I saying this is a simple thing and that there aren't some confusing aspects of this? No, I'm not saying that. Of course, there are some challenges, but it's not a challenge that can't be overcome by God. So how does all this relate to our English translations? I just want to show you this. Um, you know, perhaps you've never really seen what this looks like in terms of how the original language has come to us in English. So let me try to do this. I'm not going to show you any Greek here, but, but let's consider Luke 4.21, okay? The 21st verse here um, in our passage. In the original Greek, this is what it would look like in terms of just the word order. This is what it would look like. Began and say to them, today is fulfilled scripture this in the ear your. Okay, that's, that's confusing, isn't it? See, in Greek, words were placed in different orders than they are in the English. So there's a lot to kind of undo here as we look to find an accurate translation. That's the way it would appear in the Greek. 
Well, let's see what do our English versions look. What do they do with this? Well, here's the ESV, the version we use here at New Life. This is the translation. And he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. NIV, New International Version. This is how it translated. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. King James Version. And he began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And then one more, the New Living Translation. Then he began to speak to them, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Now who's going to look at all four of those translations and say, you see, there's so many translations, how can we possibly understand what the original meaning is? Who's going to say that? Obviously, we can get to the meaning. Here's four different translations, almost exactly the same. You can see some of the tweaks, some of the fine nuances in translating from the original language. But certainly, we are not lost in some hopeless task of trying to understand what the original Greek or Hebrew meant. Now, okay, I chose a pretty ex easy example here. Yeah, <laughs> for those of you who might have some familiarity with the original languages. But in almost all the cases, it's pretty straightforward, not too difficult to find out what the original means. Now, you might be asking, well, why are there, though, so many different English versions? We've, we've got a ton of English. I've just given you four English versions, and there's a, a, an entire list of, of more of them. So um, why are there so many different versions? And the reason I think is pretty simple. It, it's just because we have different purposes at different times for uh, the Scriptures. I don't know how well you can see that. Um, can, you, can you read that? Can any, can, I see some, some heads nodding, okay. Um, here's basically three categories of English translations of our Bibles. Um, some are called word-for-word -word translations. So those translations, as best as possible, try to translate the words of the original languages directly into English in the most literal fashion possible. So you'll see uh, the ESV, the version we use, is, is here pretty far um, to the, the left here in terms of word for word. Um, King James Version and the New King James Version considered word for word translations. So the advantage of the word for word is you get a very accurate rendering from the original language. Some of the problems with the word for word translation is it can be somewhat cumbersome. I showed you that original Greek reading, which seemed a little awkward. If you stick a little too close to that in the English, it can be kind of confusing. But if you're looking for very in-depth study of the Bible, or if you're teaching, for instance, a class, a Sunday school class, or preparing to preach a sermon, you gotta look at a word-for-word -word translation. That would be very important. But word-for-word -word translation isn't for everybody. We also have what's called a thought-for-thought -thought translation, or dynamic equivalence it's sometimes called. Thought-for-thought -thought translation is not paying attention so much to translating every single word, just looking for the basic thrust of the meaning of the passage. So for instance, in second, no, 1 Kings 2, verse 10, 
the passage says, David slept with his fathers. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) David slept with his fathers. What that means, that was just an idiom for saying that David died. Now, if you look at a word-for-word translation, it's going to say David slept with his fathers because that's exactly what it says in the Hebrew. And they just leave it up to you to figure out what that exactly means. But in the thought-for-thought translation, such as New New International Version, which I I know a lot of you have, uh, and New Revised Standard Version, the interpretation or the translation of that verse would be, David died. It would say, David died. Now, that's not exactly what it says in the Hebrew. (laughs) But that's what the Hebrew verse actually means. That's the thought. And so that's what would appear in those versions. And then the last category is what's called paraphrase. And um, you'll see here the New Living Translation and um, Good News Today, I think that is. And all the way over here on the edge is The Message, Eugene Peterson's version, which um, (laughs) is, I think, more than a paraphrase. It's more like a commentary (laughs) on, on the Bible. And a lot of people like the message, and I think we can gain some insights from the message. I would say the message is fine as long as you see it as more of a commentary than a translation. It's just so far, so far away from the original. But you you can see here there's different purposes. Again, if you're preparing a Sunday school lesson or a sermon, word for word, but let's say you're talking to somebody for whom English might not be their first language, or maybe you're talking to someone who's just 10 or 11 years old, or maybe you're talking to someone who's a brand new Christian. Well, maybe it's good to recommend a thought for thought, or maybe even a paraphrase translation to those people. I think um, New Living Translation, even though it's close to a paraphrase, is actually, actually pretty good. It's a little loose here and there, but it's, but it's good. So, <clears throat> Why are there so many English translations? I think that this, this is the reason. There are different purposes for the uses of our scriptures at various times. So, how can the Bible be reliable when it has been translated so many times? It can be because I've just showed you examples of the reliable translation from the original Greek, and more importantly, that's what we see in scripture. Translations being used with full Competence. So, second thing we want to consider now, this is a little more, little more detailed or a little more complicated, I guess. How can the Bible be reliable when it's been copied so many times? Looking back to the text here, here's Jesus. And you might have noticed that he's reading a scroll. Do you see that in verse 17? The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And then in verse 20, he rolls up the scroll and he gives it back to the attendant. So, I mean, you all know what a scroll is. You, you just kind of have to roll it open like this to, to take a look at it. It's a little bit awkward, but that was the standard format for reading the scriptures at that time, a scroll. And when it became apparent that it was a little bit difficult to navigate through a scroll to find a particular passage, you know, they didn't have a search function there. You know, if you wanted to get from deep into the Bible, I mean, you have to do a lot of unrolling of a scroll, and that became kind of difficult. And so, um, they came up with uh, what's called a codex form, which is basically the form of the Bibles we have now, like a, a leaf Bible where it's all kind of bound together like this and uh, makes it much easier to find passages. And of course, now having the Bibles on our phones, it's even easier sometimes to find passages with, with a search function. But you'll see here that scroll scrolls were the primary way that the Bible was assembled here at the time 
of Jesus' day. Now, there were different materials also used for the writing of the scriptures. So again, we're going behind the scenes here, right? Remember? Behind the scenes. Here's how scriptures would have been written in pre-New Testament times. Much, many ancient documents before the time of Christ were on something called a waxed tablet. So this is like a block of wood and it has just a coating of wax on it and then you would just write into the wax and then you could see the letters. The challenge with that though is that it was hard to make the writing endure. It's very easy to kind of get it erased and, and rub it away and it would disappear. So um, another <clears throat> material was discovered of good use for the writing of manuscripts. That's called papyrus. This is from where we get our English word paper. Um, there was a papyrus plant grew along the Nile River in Egypt. They could take the stalk of the plant and kind of lay it over crossways like this and come up with this kind of material and people could write on it. So most of the New Testament was most likely written on papyrus. Now the problem with papyrus is that it was very fragile. It, it didn't last long. With wax tablets it could get erased. With papyrus it just fell apart. And so another version or another material was found or developed called parchment. Parchment is just animal skins. Uh, and so animal skins much more durable and so most of the copies of the New Testament were written on parchment. The originals were written on papyrus. But, but here's the thing. Because of the New Testament was written on papyrus, a very fragile material, all of the original documents of the New Testament have been lost. We don't have the letters, the actual letters that Peter wrote and that Paul wrote and that John wrote and that Mark wrote. They're gone. Now, why did God arrange it this way? You know, boy, this whole process would be so much easier if we just had the originals, God, you know. <laughs> why did he let them, dis I mean, who knows? I, I don't know. Maybe people would have been tempted to, to kind of worship them the way we tend to manufacture idols in our hearts and minds. I mean, that very well could have been something. Yeah, probably the practical reason is just what I've already explained. It just wasn't very durable material, and it wore out. So here's what happened. Here's the way it worked. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark, John, they're writing the Scriptures. The Spirit is giving to them the words that God wants them to say, and then using their personality and their experience and their cultural uh, background, they write the scriptures, and so what gets put on these papyrus are exactly the words that God wants to be written down. That's what we mean when we talk about inerrancy. God guarded those writers so that exactly what God wanted was written on those uh, papyri, I think is the plural of that. <clears throat> but here's what happened. As the church grew, more churches needed to read these letters, and so you see like Colossians 4.16 here, Paul says, uh, when this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from, the Laod from Laodicea. So what Paul is saying here is distribute this letter. Get, get it out to all the other churches so all the churches can read what I've written, so all the churches can be exposed to Scripture. As copies then are made and as the originals start to fade away and get lost, here's the problem, here's what happens, and here's what gets people so upset, here's what gets people so worried. As we look at all the various copies that we have of the original, some differences show up. 
one manuscript might say this, and then you look at another manuscript, and it says something just slightly different. And these are called variants. There are a number of variants among the thousands of copies of the manuscripts from the New Testament that we have. And so people get very alarmed about this, and that's what this Newsweek article is trying to say. That's what Shirley MacLaine and Larry King want us to think. Oh, there's been so many copies that the original has been lost because the copies have completely distorted and corrupted the text, and now all we have in our Bibles is a complete mess that has no connection to the original. And so that's what I want to explore here. Is this really a problem for us, that what we have are the copies and not the originals? Is that a problem? And the answer is no. It's not a problem. Let me show you why. Three, three things. I don't think this is a problem. One is this. The Bible itself affirms the use of copies. Remember the subtitle of this sermon series, what scripture says about scripture. Fundamentally, what we want to know is what does the Bible say about the Bible? The Bible's our ultimate authority, going back to sola scriptura. And the Bible actually affirms the use of copies. It's just amazing how you'll find these passages that you'll just blow through and have no idea how relevant they are to certain doctrines. For instance, Proverbs 25. These also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. Is anybody worried that maybe we, at that time, were they worried that we can't really know what Solomon meant because they were using copies? Certainly no indication of that. How about Deuteronomy 17, the charge given to the kings of Israel. When he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. This was a command of God, use a copy. And you know what, when we look at Luke 4 and we see the scroll of Isaiah that Jesus is reading in this passage, friends, do you know what? He's reading a copy. Jesus was not reading the original manuscript written by Isaiah. That was written centuries before. He's reading a copy. And again, do you see anybody saying, oh, how can we know you're Messiah, Jesus? You're reading a copy. And it's been copied and copied and copied and copied over the centuries. And how can we know what it really means? Nobody says that to Jesus because it wasn't a problem. For them, it shouldn't be a problem for us. The Bible affirms the use of copies. Here's the second thing. These variants are very small. In almost all cases, they're so trivial. They're so tiny they hardly have any significance at all. So um, there's a book by Greg Gilbert on the scriptures where he gives some examples of this. So, so let me show you. You've got to look very carefully at the screen in, in order to get the point here. But here are some examples of variance, examples of differences that are found in the manuscript copies. Sometimes letters are switched out. You see the end of the word switched is a B. Well, a B kind of looks like a D. So it's easy to confuse that. Sometimes that's the kind of variant we're talking about. In other cases, one word is replaced by another one. You have two different words spelled differently. 
well, it wasn't copied right. The guy put in W-O-N when he should have put in O-N-E. Is it very difficult to figure out what ought to be there at the end of that sentence? Words might skipped. <laughs> or words might be be doubled. In the majority of cases, when we're talking about differences in the manuscripts, this is the kind of thing we're talking about. Tiny things, boring things, <laughs> things that do not have an effect on the meaning of the verses. And then the last thing is, is related to this. Is this a problem? No. Most importantly because no gospel doctrine is affected by any of the variants, by any of the differences that we find in these manuscripts. When we're talking about the divinity of Jesus, God as creator, when we're talking about the significance of his death on the cross, his shed blood there for sinners, we're talking about his resurrection from the dead, the necessity of faith in him for salvation. These kinds of major gospel doctrines are not affected at all by any of these variants. It's one of the wonderful things about the repetition of the Bible. Sometimes you read the Bible and you say, why do they keep repeating things? Well, that's a good thing, actually, because wherever there might be a little variant, you can look in a number of other places throughout the Bible and see how it comes together in unity to assure us of the truth of whatever might be under dispute in some variant issue. No gospel doctrine is affected. Let, let me give an example to kind of sum this whole thing up. <clears throat> Let's say um, your Aunt Sally has this wonderful recipe for pumpkin pie. And a lot of you probably had pumpkin pie on uh, Thanksgiving. And so Aunt Sally's got this great recipe. And it's, it's so wonderful that all her friends want a copy. So Aunt Sally writes down the recipe in great detail. And she gives it to her friends. Let's say three friends. So the three friends get these copies. And the three friends love pumpkin pie so much, they want to keep that copy, but they make their own copy. And they give it to six or eight of their friends. And so now you've got, you know, whatever the math is there, you've got 25, 30 people with a copy of this recipe. Well, then let's say Aunt Sally's dog eats the pumpkin pie recipe. The original is gone. It's gone forever. What are they going to do? Can they ever make that pumpkin pie again? <laughs> is the pumpkin pie lost to obscurity? No, what is she going to do? She's going to get all of her friends together. They're going to get in a room, and they're going to look at all of those copies that they made of that pumpkin pie recipe. And you know what? They're probably going to find a few occasions where things are a little bit different. Maybe one says a third cup of brown sugar, and another says two-thirds a cup of brown sugar. But when you see that 19 out of 20 say two-thirds, and one says one-third, pretty sure it's two-thirds. Pretty sure. Would anybody think with this story that it, it would be impossible to recover the pumpkin pie recipe since the original was lost? No. That pumpkin pie, using the copies, is going to taste just as good if they had the originals. And the gospel of Jesus Christ tastes just as good using our English Bibles made from copies as it would 
if we had the originals. D.A. Carson says this, the purity of text is of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance, by the differences. So friends, is your Bible reliable? That's the question. The answer is yes. Your English Bible is reliable. The Bible you have in your hands is reliable. You can hear from that Bible Understand from the Bible everything you need to know about salvation and how to live a life glorifying to God. From that, you can get the message very clearly. There is a God. He exists. He's created all things. He's created you. This God is holy. He's righteous. He's mighty. He's glorious. He's created you in his image. You're a dignified human being because you're made in the image of God. You have worth because you're made in God's image. But you know what? You've sinned against him. You've offended him. You haven't lived for his glory. And God's angry about that. But full of love and grace, what God has done is he has sent his son into the world. The second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's come, he lived a perfect life. He obeyed the Father in everything required of him. He went to a cross, he died, he shed his blood. He was risen from the dead. By shedding his blood, he offered payment for all of your sins and all of your offenses. And by being raised from the dead, he received approval from the Father that his work on the cross was acceptable to him. And by virtue of that, anyone who puts faith in Jesus can know that his or her sins are forgiven and that you belong to your creator and can have a relationship with him forever. That is clear in the Bible. The Bibles that you have right now communicate that to you. And your responsibility now is to respond to that in repentance and in faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Bible is reliable to give us that message and much more. So let's go to the word. Let's make it a staple in our lives. Let's read it. Let's memorize it. And let's submit ourselves to its authority. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have in your sovereignty and providence and wisdom preserved your word for us. That we are not left without hope. We are not left in confusion, but we have assurance from you about what you've done for our salvation. Thank you. Uh, Lord, give us hearts that are more passionate for your word, that have increasing confidence in your word, and that are increasing grateful increasingly grateful for the word that you've given us. We pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen.